4: Basically, the band said, we have a sort of vision where there's going to be a flavor, like, per show. And here are flavors that band members remember kind of from their childhood that they resonate with, that what a donut, like, means to them, this is what they think of. So they sent us a list of just flavors in a a rough list. And there were more than, you know... baker's dozen at the time there were probably a few that were eliminated over the course of the project and they said can you make these flavors and if so how would you make those flavors so then we gave the list our chef matt fine And he iterated those flavors and described the way that Federal Donuts would execute them. Or, you know, if we hadn't done it yet, he was like, I could do this or this. One constraint that we do have at Federal Donuts is we make cake donuts, which are, you know, there's two kinds. There's cake and yeast-raised donuts. So cake donuts don't have a space inside the way a yeast-raised donut does, where you could put a filling in, like a jelly donut. It basically has like an empty space inside when it rises. And our donuts don't have that. So we could not make a straight up filled donut. They had to be basically like topped like we did for jam filled. It was like jam on top of a mini donut. So that did create like something we just were like, oh, this we can't do this. We also realized quickly that we were not going to have any refrigeration at the garden. We had no access to refrigeration so everything had to be stable. So it couldn't have like an egg custard or something in it that would need to be refrigerated until it was handed out. So we just basically were like, these are the constraints. This is what we can do. This is how chef and imagines it and sent that back to them. And then they um, approved what they wanted of those donuts and ordered them into the schedule and said, you know, we'll need one a day. It was pretty easy, actually.
3: That's the voice of Felicia D'Ambrosio, co-founder of Federal Donuts. If we're going to talk about the baker's dozen, we're going to have to at least mention the donuts.
4: Everything was made in Philadelphia at our main, our biggest federal donuts uh, at 7th and Fairmount. So... Everything was made there overnight. They started, I think, the shift at midnight to make all the donuts for that show. So they were made like day of, and they were all made by our chef, Matt Fine, and one of his cooks, Marisol, pretty much made every single donut that people had at the dozen, the two of them. Driven by one of our our truck boys up to New York, and they had to leave very early, and they had to be at the garden by a certain time because we were like, you know, God forbid the tunnel has an accident or there's some kind of disaster. Like, what if they didn't get there by showtime? It would be a total crisis. So, I was very nervous about the deliveries actually that caused me more sweat than anything because i was like what if something happens to the delivery so we left a lot of time and as a result the donuts were at the garden really early every day and they needed to be monitored because people were pilfering them because they were sort of like unlocked and the garden assigned a security guard to the donuts so when they arrived in delivery they were placed And then the MSG security sat there with them until we got ready to wrap and distribute, which I thought was hilarious. And the fellow who did it the most was a retired NYPD officer, and he was so funny. Like, we actually had a really good time chatting.
3: This episode of Undermine is not an hour about fried dough with a hole in the middle, although that certainly would be delicious.
5: Mmm. Yummy donut. (laughs) It's pretty good. But try it like this. Mm.
3: Donut. Mmm, donut. Nope, this is the set list episode where we talk about the song choices fish made during the baker's dozen. That is to say, coconut, strawberry, red velvet, jam filled, powdered, double chocolate, cinnamon, Jimmy's, maple, holes, lemon, Boston cream, and glazed.
4: Originally, the last night wasn't going to be called glazed, it was going to be called old fashioned and they changed it to Glazed. Glazed is funnier because like really on, you know, the 13th night of 13 fish shows, like we were all feeling probably a little glazed, like the band too. So I thought that that actually was like a a cute little wink. Um, And that night didn't have like a flavored theme. It was just a, it was fish, right? It was just rocking fish. So I think old fashioned kind of gets you there as well. Like it's, it's what we do. It's the fish experience, like without a gimmick. But I thought Glazed was funnier. And that was the band they made decisions there. Like, we didn't change anything that they sent us. It was honestly, at first, like, completely overwhelming. Like, the day that we were uh, starting the first night of the dozen and the coconut and everything. And like, when we were actually doing it, I was like, I think I might like pass out at some point and like fall down all the steps of the garden. Cause I was just totally overwhelmed with the experience. It was literally like a dream come true. And that was probably the first time in my life a dream came true for me. And it was absolutely surreal. It literally changed my life because I was like, oh wow, dreams do come true. They do. (laughs) And it was so wild because I've never been like, I'm not ambitious. Like I kind of just like roll along like blow in the wind. And it was kind of indescribable. I was super overstimulated the entire dozen. I had so much fun.
3: Hi, I'm Tom Marshall, and as I mentioned before, I'm not here today to talk to you about donuts. Well, maybe the universe is shaped like a donut, but let's talk about another food category, the taste-treat kids love to eat, Fish. They're the band that this podcast is focused on. I write lyrics for them, which is why I'm here. And for our third season, we are focusing on the summer of 2017 when Fish descended upon New York City for a 13-night residency at Madison Square Garden called... The Baker's Dozen. Each night of The Baker's Dozen corresponded musically to an announced donut flavor. For a made-up example, if the theme was blueberry cake, they might have opened with a cake cover and then gone into alumni blues. Hey, why didn't they think of that? An undisclosed, highly classified number of donuts with that night's flavor were handed out at the door to those fans who arrived early. My personal favorite, flavor-wise, I would say was double chocolate because I'm an absolute chocolate head. Although, I really liked maple as well. Side note, if you're still saving your donuts as a memento, it's time to reconsider. Take them off your trophy shelf, break the glass, and, well, whatever you decide, let us know how it goes. In episode one, we discussed the venue, the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden. And last week, in episode two, we examined Fish's history of multiple night stands and special events like the long gig on the eve of the new millennium when Fish performed one long five-and-a-half-hour set, shredding all night long till dawn in a field in the Everglades. And since the Baker's Dozen was a no-repeat residency, we promise not to have repeats here either. It's on with the show. Almost. It's almost on with the show. First, we have to pay the piper. We'll be right back. The first officially recognized fish set list, from what fish historians believe to be the first fish show, was from December 2nd, 1983, not 1030 83, as was originally thought. And the band likely wasn't billed as fish just yet, but calling a spade a spade, fish's set that first night included Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress. Proud Mary, in the midnight hour, and Scarlet Begonias into fire on the mountain, all covers. It would have been unusual if it hadn't been. By the following year, prototypes and early versions of Macky Supa Policeman, Fluffhead, and Slave to the Traffic Light begin to appear some of which Trey brought with him from his high school days, and some of which he worked out with new bandmates, like original guitarist Jeff Holdsworth's contribution, Camel Walk. By 1985, songs that it is almost impossible to imagine fish ever existing without, such as Harry Hood, Mike Song, McGrupp, Run Like an Antelope, all get added to the mix and played at most shows between the covers that were necessary to make a complete show coveted nuggets and forgotten gems like dog log and dave's energy guide weren't rarities they were debuts and probably played a lot what we know from this era is as murky as some of the details of the norwegian band cosvote voxed a lot has gotten lost to history and the rest likely fictionalized By the end of the decade that made them, the 1980s, Fish had built up a considerable catalog of originals, along with having an ever-evolving batch of covers at their disposal. Through their residencies at Nectars, house parties, and college gigs, they were exploring both their humorous side.
6: Wait a minute, I forgot to tell you the name of the cat.
7: The name of the cat was... Buster NARBSACK! No. No.
3: Their serious compositional side. And their shreddy side. By the start of the 1990s, Fish's setlist patterns were just getting interesting.
8: I feel like Fish, from 1990 to 1992, were working on their classic material,
3: and the setlist didn't change that much from night to night. That's our friend Scott Bernstein from Jambase, here to give us the skinny.
8: Certainly there were... People that were seeing multiple shows, but I don't think Fish. Played to those people so much as they realized that they'd be performing in front of new audiences and music fans that had never seen Fish before, and they wanted to show off their best material. So, You Enjoy Myself got played every other night, Mike's song got played every other night. Rarities were few and far between because it was less important to the band to impress the fans that had already been there in terms of the the catalog, than it was to play really well and play the complex
3: material tight and pull it off well. And that's something they did every night. During the band's launch period, out of necessity, they just needed to write songs, as many as they could, so that they would have enough material to fill a show. Then they needed to have enough material to allow them to change up the set lists, giving the band the ability to play to the room while also giving fans motivation to come back for more. By 1992, Fish had a catalog big enough to play around with. The band's most prolific composer, Trey, that's Trey Anastasio for those just joining us, began to write songs with a set list in mind. He had the luxury at that point in knowing that they could play three set shows, such as Amy's Farm on August 3rd, 1991, that showcase most of their classic fish material and still keep a few in their pocket for the next show. Given that the next show in this example was almost two months later, on September 25th, 1991, they also debuted four new songs that night, Brother, It's Ice, Sparkle, and All Things Reconsidered. It was a fertile era for fish material. The thing is, 31 years later, it still is. The band has never stopped writing new songs and Trey in particular has never really slowed down. And that's exactly the reason why Fish was able to perform 13 two-set shows at Madison Square Garden without a single repeat and still have enough material to keep going. And just think of all the material that has made it into the repertoire in the five years since The Baker's Dozen. The Fish Secret Recipe isn't just about the songbook, it is equally about song function and set list construction. In the mid-1990s, the role that a new song could play in the context of the overall show was equally as important as the meaning. Sometimes even the role was the meaning. The sets needed an opener that would allow fans to get settled into their seats, while also calling them to immediate attention. needed emphatic, anthemic (laughs) set-closers. Encores. Mid set masterpieces, and of course, big jams. By the mid 90s, Fish had all the parts they needed to build new set lists daily, making each of them compelling for various reasons each with a strong foundation, some with a theme, others more of a vibe, and still others a narrative or show arc. In this way, the band could pick and choose what songs they wanted to play on a given night, have them be entirely different songs from the night before, and still give audiences a complete and cohesive rock show. In 1993, Fish's set list changed a lot to me.
8: I feel like the repertoire had become pretty big at this point where you could go a couple of nights without playing songs and there was still enough material that the band was was tight with and could play and pull off a- a- effectively. And Trey had talked during this period how putting together the set list each night was a form of composition for him. As a writer, he really enjoyed, he spent hours putting together the set list for the next night, thinking about the the show as a ride and wanting to have high energy moments and the beautiful moments and and took it so incredibly seriously and got off on making the set list from night to night and coming up with inventive segues and it almost seemed like Fish practiced some of those transitions during soundcheck and pulled them off during the show. I think In later years, it was more playing off the vibe of the room once the show started, than spending hours in the hotel room the night before, coming up with the game plan for the next night.
3: That's right, Scotty B. Those years were each years of phenomenal growth for the band as they moved from nightclubs and dance halls to ballrooms and theaters, to arenas and amphitheaters. Reliant, as it were, on repeat audiences, Going on fish tour became not only a rite of passage for fans in the 90s, but it was immediately understood that it was truly the only way to get the full fish experience. If you only went to one show, you only got a corner piece of the larger puzzle, and you knew it, and you wanted to see the whole picture. Your donut had a hole in it, so you needed tapes, set lists, backstory, and all the information you could get off the internet. Tours felt like one long show, or at least one long narrative. Somewhere along the way, there was story time with Colonel Forbin. Another night you forfeited hearing your favorite songs, so that you could climb aboard a wild ride when Mike's song went off the rails and landing in Aniculus, that transformed the venue into a midnight gospel tent. One night, the band spontaneously wove a Run OJ Run theme throughout the second set, a reference to the OJ Simpson car chase that the band caught wind of at set break. And another night, they dedicated the first set to a complete retelling of Gamehenge, and then played their entire new album, Hoist, for the second set. During a period in the band's history where every show felt like it was even better than the night before, every night felt like it was an important chapter that you needed to hear, if you wanted to know the whole story. And if you weren't there, the only way to hear it would be the audience recordings weeks and sometimes months later. Every set list in the mid-90s seemed remarkably unique, especially if you read the footnotes. As a testament, all these years later, seasoned fish fans will still know exactly what show you're talking about if you say Game Hoist or The OJ Show. It's not unlike what Fish did at the Baker's Dozen for jam-filled night, when some of the upper sections of the building were sparse or entirely empty, it being an inconvenient night of the week, a Tuesday, and show number 4 of 13. Second song in during Lawn Boy, a song which Fish had performed more than 200 times prior, but which never really strayed from form, they tore into a 30-minute improvisational jam. After that, there were no longer sparse or empty sections at MSG. Not for the rest of Baker's Dozen, and not since, either. But back to the mid-90s, we were focused on set lists from 1994 above. By 95, Trey was fully aware that a large portion of the audience were seeing more than one show. Many were seeing at least a few, and more than a few were seeing many. And the set lists were very effective bait. If you were there on December 1st in Hershey, Pennsylvania, then you witnessed Trey give a philosophical history lesson that ended with him transporting the entire building from the mystical land of chocolate to Gamehenge. And if you weren't there, all you needed to do was to see Colonel Forbins into Mockingbird on a set list to know that you missed out on something that you would never, ever be able to see firsthand for yourself. It was special. Every night was. That was the point. That's why we kept and keep coming back for more. Do we? We do. Of course we do. But I'm just reading what they give me. And on that note, let's hear once again from Undermine head writer Benji Ison. Don't worry though, I'll be here all night.
9: Fish felt like an entirely different band every night. But every tour felt like uh, an entirely different story. A complete story. And by the Neds tour, they had a whole brand new story to tell. So 1996 was when Fish settled into arenas and in doing so they settled into a setless rotation that, you know, some have said it felt a little more routine. There were less shows like the ones that Tom just talked about, or like the Bomb Factory show, for instance. Look, you can leave a show feeling like you just saw the best fucking band on the planet, but the show itself didn't necessarily feel very different from the show that you saw the night before or the week before the other shows of that tour. In the set list, inside of them, there are going to be some classics, some big jams for sure, maybe a rarity, a couple showcase compositions, a few rockers, and then, you know, some material from Billy Breeze, which was the new album at the time. So all these elements, which are fantastic elements, the best elements, and there was this designated slot for each song that served the show arc so well that it meant the band could plug and play and provide something for everyone in that whole building. You know, all these new fans that were just coming out to the shows for the first time, all of them were entertained. And all of the old fans, well, <laughs>
3: you know, we were all entertained as well. There were still plenty of must-hear shows, and very often an unusual setlist had something to do with that. For example, The M Show in St. Louis on November fifteenth, 1996, when a word in the title of every song of the second set began with the letter M, until the set-closing Wiccapa groove, which incongruously featured blues traveler John Popper on harmonica. The
10: focus in 1997
3: famously became less about the songs and more about the energy and, of course, the funk. Fish shows in 1997 were straight-up dance parties. They always were, and they still are, but 1997 was feeling that vibe extra hard as entire arenas became giant raves for hippies whenever Fish was in town. The following year built upon this new pivot, and to this day, you can pretty much identify a late-summer 1998 setlist by scanning for the debut of a cover you might expect to be on your local pizza parlor's jukebox. Most nights, fans were treated to a song that the band had likely learned earlier that very day, songs you could sing along to or at least pump your fist to. Songs by Van Halen, Jane's Addiction, The Beastie Boys, The Grateful Dead, Bob Marley, Led Zeppelin, Smashing Pumpkins, all made Fish's summer 98 mixtape. It was the summer of covers.
11: But something happened after the band stopped writing thoughtfully composed setlist. Their biggest growth spurt was during the period when Trey spent time plotting out each night's arc approaching it as if he was composing a song but now that the shows had turned into giant dance and drug parties the band seemed happy to provide the soundtrack as they partied along they may have felt that nobody would notice or at least care too much that the setlist had taken a backseat to making sure that everyone in the building was on their feet dancing and they weren't wrong this continued until the party ended with the band breaking up in 2004
3: Five years go by, Fish gets back together, and they open their first show back with Fluffhead. Significantly, a song that they had stopped playing in their 2.0 era, despite fan campaigns, petitions, and chants. It was a very thoughtful, very intentional choice. And in the three years that followed, as the band was getting reacquainted with their catalog, they began to appreciate its scope and respect its depth. Before the return of Fluffhead grabbed our attention, You heard the voice of HF Pod's Megan Gliana. HF Pod, also known as the Helping Friendly Podcast, is kind of our podcast companion on this ride. Here's her HF Pod co-host and Undermine producer, Brian Brinkman, detailing Fish's evolving approach to setless construction since their return to active duty in 3.0.
1: In the years leading up to the Baker's Dozen, there were tours where Trey tried to vary up the set list by changing song positions, playing traditional second set material in the first or vice versa, opening shows with mid-set hits, weaving segments of songs throughout an entire set or even an entire show. There were tours where the first set became statistician stats. Everybody was able to check off songs that they had been chasing in some cases for years. And then the second set had some crowd-pleasers, and either one monster jam or several with a connective standard in between them. It should also be noted that few of these shows had a traditional premeditated setlist. Instead, Trey would pluck songs on the fly from a song list at his feet that he had circulated to the band earlier in the day. And for the most part, that remains the band's current method, improvisational setlist construction. In the years since Fish reunited and came back, they've tried tours that consciously script the sides and bottoms of the song bucket, so that each night had long forgotten gems, bust outs, and general variety. Even without a predetermined order, song lists once again became the emphasis of the first set as the band proudly recited as many of their old tunes as possible while also showcasing new material that helped their own interest in playing.
3: Thanks for all that, Brian. Let's pass the mic to Mike. That's Relics Magazine's Mike Greenhouse, who is a friend of the podcast.
12: You know, I think that from the moment Fish returned in 2009 with those Hampton shows, literally from the moment that they opened with Fluffhead, which was the most requested, not played song in, in the 2.0 era, they made it very clear that they were going to reclaim their legacy and they were going to revisit many of the songs that they had let go in the past and really flip them on their head and kind of use their songbook in a way as their secret weapon you know a lot of that material had faded away not only in the 2.0 era but you know in, in the late 90s and in early 2000s, they were writing a ton of new material, they were stretching their songs longer and longer, you know, and I think just like any band who is focused in the moment, they weren't thinking as much about their past repertoire like they did when they returned in 2009, but, you know, they obviously weren't returning as a nostalgia act and they, they weren't returning as a band who was just digging into the repertoire. They were taking these forgotten songs or songs that hadn't been played for a while and they were bringing new life into them, uh, whether it was improvisationally or, or placement-wise, or just juxtaposing songs that they wrote in their 20s and, and early 30s that, with songs that they were now writing as, as middle-aged musicians and making them fit together like puzzle pieces. And I think from, from 09 on, that's been a hallmark of the 3.0 era that makes it different than their, their earlier period. In the early years of 3.0, their Dick's run really did have a feel that is very reminiscent of what they would do at the Garden over the years, meaning that they would dig in and they would stretch out at a venue and flex their improvisational muscles, of course, but also make it special in terms of some of the, the set list placements. There were several years you had these uh, spelling bee experiences where they uh, played around with their set list, whether it's all songs that start with an S or spelling song titles or other little references to their fan base with the song or- and I think that that really did have a throwback feel to what they would do at the garden and what they would do, with, of course, at their, their club days at Nectar's and elsewhere in the Burlington area. And I think that, you know, by 2012, they, the band really was feeling more comfortable together improvising. They were feeling more comfortable with their material, with each other, with being back.
3: Here's something you don't hear every day. But here to support and compliment the Relics Magazine guy, longtime music writer, our associate, Rob Mitchum.
13: I think in sort of like 2009 through, let's say, 2011, 2012, I'm not quite sure where it ended, but the, the early years of the comeback, Trey was so excited to be back on stage with Fish. Rightly so. We were all very excited that Fish was back on stage. Trey wanted to play every Fish song. <laughs> and it was just like he was falling back in love with the catalog. It almost was a reversion to the early days of Fish, where every night they were trying to show all of the things they were capable of rather than picking just one or two dimensions of fish and really leaning into that on any given night. So you get a lot of these grab bag type set lists that don't really tell a cohesive story like you see in the great sets of the late 90s and then, you know, more recently here in 3.0. Uh you see a lot of sets that just feel like here's 25 fish songs thrown together that we're really excited to play again and maybe we'll play a great performance of, but they don't really hang together in a way that the great fish shows do. That I think would I would say is kind of the weakest from a setlist perspective and it's something that they definitely had to relearn over the course of 3.0. And I think something that they relearned in part by doing the Baker's Dozen shows.
3: And that, friends, brings us to the summer of 2017, the Baker's Dozen. The reason we're all here. Well, it's not the reason I'm here. As I've been saying all along, I'm here for the donuts. We do get a box of federal donuts for this, right? Well, I guess I misread that one. Okay, right, believe it or not, we're talking about the fish's baker's dozen. But, just like fish themselves, we had some history to lay down in order to get there. And here we are, at the gates of 4 Pennsylvania Plaza, right outside the doors to the world's most famous arena. By making it a no-repeat endeavor, Fish transformed their three-week Madison Square Garden residency into one long show, one story that stretched over 13 nights in 26 sets. At the same time, they also, it should be noted, did a fantastic job of making sure that if you only could make it to one night, you still got a complete experience. Nobody went home feeling unsatisfied, although at the same time, you left each night aware there was a larger arc, which means you left wanting more. Conventional wisdom says that's a desirable thing for both the band and the fans. It means you'll be back. We'll be back, too, right after this. Hi, it's me, Tom Marshall. Told you we'd be back, and I'm a man of my word. We spent a lot of time in this episode talking about the thousands of set lists that led up to the 13 they played at the Baker's Dozen. Let's narrow our gaze, er, glaze, for a moment on the shows that immediately preceded the historic residency. There were five of them, three in Chicago, one in Dayton, and one in Pittsburgh. And although emotionally they felt like a warm-up for the marathon to come, set list-wise, well they kind of felt like a warm-up as well, in so much as they were taking songs for joyrides, seeing how much mileage they could get out of old standards with 20-plus minute jams, new debuts, and old dusted-off relics. Musically, however, there was no warming up. The band was blazing hot out of the gates that summer. As a testament, the 27-minute simple on night two in Chicago remains as magnificent as any jam they played in the garden during the weeks that followed. all five of those shows get overshadowed by what came next, but all five of those shows individually hold their own in the summer 2017 history book. Here's Scott Bernstein again to back us up.
8: The shows leading up to the Baker's Dozen were almost a a, a test run. They gave Fish a a chance to try out some of the songs that they were thinking about playing during the Baker's Dozen, songs from the Trey Band repertoire that Fish had never played before. Some worked more than others. We also saw them bust out songs like Mr. Completely and It it was foreshadowing what was coming with the Baker's Dozen in terms of how far they dug into their repertoire. First night of the Baker's Dozen, I'll never forget, I met up with a bunch of friends at a bar before heading over to Madison Square Garden. Everyone was asking me about this rumor that they wouldn't repeat anything over the course of the 13-show run.
3: And I was convinced there was no way in hell that would happen. Just as the band didn't announce that Big Cypress would include one long set that went from midnight till dawn, in characteristic form, they never said anything about the Baker's Dozen having no repeats. They just did it, and let the fans figure it out, with many of them no doubt debating it until the point of no return. Let's check in with another undermined correspondent, setlist scholar, Scott Marks.
14: Uh, Somebody had sent me a message before night six that it was going to happen. I, at that point... I was already doing nine shows. I, I was running short on vacation time, and then I, after those three weekend shows, when we were at eight, I pulled the trigger and did the two weekday shows and had to travel back and forth Rhode Island a couple times and on the train and, and late nights and early mornings, but pulled it off somehow didn't get sick afterwards. But it was that can't miss thing when you, you realized what was happening and you, you wanted to make sure that you were there. So they had already done five shows with no repeats, which I, I think had been their limit. They, I, I can circle back to fall 2000, where the first five shows of that tour were no repeats. You had three venues at that point, as opposed to five shows in one venue. So now we were approaching something where, okay, they've done this this far. Are they going to go that extra step and do no repeats? And even if I hadn't been told before the show started, I, I probably would have had the idea at the end of the show at night six, because now you've gone where they haven't gone before. And it's like, well, all right, they're probably gonna do it at this point and play all thirteen nights with no repeats. Your jaw just kind of drops when you're you're thinking that they're actually gonna do this. you take some of your big jam vehicles out of the picture after your first two shows, then you kind of put on yourself to, as, as a musician to, it's, it's more of a challenge to, to get that, that done. And we were lucky to be there for it. I wanted to make sure I was there for every minute for the rest of the Baker's dozen. By 2017, Fish had written or
8: performed hundreds of songs. Their repertoire Was massive, and the beauty of it is, if Fish plays something one time in 1995, they're not gonna forget about it. And Trey clearly has a master song list, has a list of every song the band's ever played, and here was an opportunity to put together 13 different set lists that made the most of the hundreds of songs that were in Fish's repertoire.
3: Let's bring another one of our good friends into this conversation. Dave Kalarka a.k.a. Mr. Minor, who many of you will remember from last season.
15: So there are like four elements that I feel stood out at the Baker's Dozen that kind of define what Fish is and who they are musically. First is obviously the endless catalog of music. You know, they played 13 nights without repeating a song. I don't know any other band that is able to do that, let alone would care to do that. Obviously, the second part is improvisation and the amount of jamming that took place over the two and a half weeks. Obviously it's part and parcel of who Fish is and who they've been for their entire careers. Third was the set crafting. And I think this is probably what I took away as the most significant part of The Baker's Dozen. And the fourth part is just like the cleverness and the prankster nature and the joking fishiness, if you will, is really the word, the only word that exists to describe that element of who they are. Those are like the four parts of fish. And the thing that really stood out at The Baker's Dozen to me was the set crafting, because this is something that Trey spent a lot of time on in their past. But in the modern era, it became very clear that he just is working off a song list at his feet, calling things as he feels them. Oftentimes it works and oftentimes it didn't. And I reread the little essay that came with the the box set of the Baker's Dozen remasters. Trey talks about how he spent six to nine months previous to this run crafting these set lists thinking about covers, thinking about what's going to work where, said he had like these little whiteboards strewn about his kitchen and pined over them for a long time, which is completely other than how he approached fish shows in the years prior to this. And I think that was the biggest element that had been missing from the fish we knew back in the day. Which would really be focused on creating these like set long musical journeys with like a real contour to them where every song had a a real place in that arc and a lot of the 3.0 sets even the good ones they didn't possess that flow and that's what stood out so strongly when occasionally they did create one of those sets right but so often there would be just like random songs thrown in whether they be after jams or late in the second set it almost felt like they were filling times sometimes but in these 13 shows, it became abundantly clear that there was a lot of thought put into like how these sets were created. And I think that that really became the defining element of the Baker's Dozen.
12: You know, I know Trey put a lot of time and thought into his set lists for that run. You know, they didn't have a traditional written-down set list. You see pictures of all the, the cardboard cutouts where he wrote down different themes that go in with each night. And I think that that approach that they took for those shows has guided them. The tours immediately following maybe didn't have the depth and breadth of the Baker's Dozen, but ever since then, they've kind of played with their set list order in ways that they hadn't done in many years. You know, Long Forest weren't just one or two songs. They could be mini sets. There were songs that traditionally opened certain Sections of the show that were placed in different orders or traditionally closed that they were placed in the middle, all that stuff. I think they felt the courage and the ability to not only dig into songs they hadn't played for a while, but songs they never even played at all. One of my favorite parts of Baker's Dozen was when they debuted End of Session, the little coda to Story of the Ghosts, which I'd always loved, um, but the band had never played. That was a 1998 album, and it took them until 2017 to play. A few years later at Madison Square Garden, they debuted Bliss, which was an instrumental bit on Billy Breves that they had never played played. You know, there were songs like Axela 2 that had uh, been on the shelf for many, many years and were long forgotten. And I think that that's something that continues through the Halloween shows they did just last year in
13: Las Vegas.
3: That was Mike Greenhouse once again. Here's Rob Mitchum.
13: It just really was a useful reminder to them that... You know, sort of these rules that have been baked into their set list over the years uh, were made to be broken, which is all the exciting points in fish history. It's because they took these sort of traditions and threw them out the window and, and did things in a different way.
8: I think that fish going 13 shows without any repeats is one of the things that makes the Baker's Dozen so historic and so unlike anything in rock history.
3: To put the accomplishment into perspective, well, this whole season has been an attempt to put this thing into perspective. But let's look at it like this. Many of the bands that you love, or if that is presumptuous, let us say many, in fact most, of all the touring bands out there large enough to fill an arena, from the birth of rock to the current day, spend weeks, sometimes months, perfecting one show, usually one 90-minute set, give or take, and they rehearse and rehearse and rehearse for weeks or in the case of some bands, for months, giving attention and thought to every note. They bring in choreographers, musical directors, lighting directors, special effect companies, and they create a product, and they take this product on tour around the country or around the world, performing the exact same show every night, down to the banter. If there's any variation, it might be a few songs here or there. The Rolling Stones, The Who, Pink Floyd, Bon Jovi, Metallica, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, U2, Elton John, The Eagles, Paul Simon. They all tour either with a rigid set list or at least with a template that stays relatively the same for an entire tour or more. In fact, many of their set lists only change by four or five songs from album cycle to album cycle. That means that many of the world's top entertainers haven't performed 13 unique, no repeat shows in their entire careers. Including those whose careers have gone on for 30, 40, or fifty years. You hear
13: about that? What's that? Did you hear they
3: they played thirteen shows
1: at Madison Square Garden? Oh yeah. yeah Did you hear yeah. about that? With, without repeating without yeah, repeating a single
14: any single song? That's,
15: That's insane. I wonder how many songs they
11: have in their catalog.
14: I think from what I read, it was a lot of covers.
11: Yeah, I know that they, they do sometimes they do entire
8: albums. Only thirteen shows. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Just get started, bro. That'd be a nightmare, wouldn't it? Mm, God,
14: yeah. Pretty much. Mm. <laughs> Especially if they were anything,
3: 13 in a row. Anything more than, anything more than two. In a row,
14: yeah.
8: though. <laughs> like, uh, wow, residency. Yeah. And you don't get to play the same song.
3: Ah. Uh, you don't have that luxury. <laughs> Fish not only did 13 unique, no repeat shows in a row on the world's biggest stage without so much as a dress rehearsal. But if they were to do it again, they could go for 18 shows or more without breaking a sweat. Show me one other arena rock band that can do that. I'll drop the mic here, but by accident. Sorry, I was distracted thinking about what the additional donut flavors might be. But while the mic is dropped, we'll be right back. Another feature of the Baker's Dozen setlists, in addition to the whole no-repeat thing, was the theme. The theme of each night was determined by the corresponding donut flavor. Sometimes the band made sly puns like playing both of Fleet Fox's White Winter Hymnal and Prince's 1999 on Powdered Night, going after two different thematic threads. Sometimes they went fully overt, like singing Strawberry Fields Forever on Strawberry Night. Every night, the band pulled thematic selections from their own catalog, for example, Sugar Shack and Leaves on Maple Night. Pretty clever, guys. Or Waiting in the Velvet Sea on Red Velvet Night. But every night also featured covers, many of them debuts and some of them destined for one-time-only status, while others have since made it into some place on the rotation. Let's hear from some fans who made it to all 13 shows, beginning with Sam Timberg.
2: If I had to pick a single cover that I go back to and listen to frequently from a a musical standpoint that just absolutely connected with me and blew my mind would have to be the cover of I'm the Walrus. I absolutely adored that cover. It's just intensity, this electric shock into the venue before a set break that almost as good a, a first set closer of anything from the Baker's Dozen and certainly the best Beatles cover I think I've seen Fish do and probably the best Beatles cover I've ever seen. Um, It was just absolutely incredible. I, I loved that. honest one of the one of the covers that i don't think people really talk about that was just so unexpected and absolutely in line with the theme of the night and take something that you know and, and make it completely different was the, the oh holy night cover um in the in the mike sandwich it, it just absolutely out of left field here's a, a band we're used to playing right around the holidays in, in madison square garden and you're in the middle of like a hot stinky sweaty new york city summer they're playing a cover of Oh Holy Night, and it's like absolutely bone chilling. It's one of the few songs I can listen back to from any era of fish that makes literally the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Oh, on your knees, oh, dear, the angel's oh holy night out of mike's song was one of my favorite moments of the entire baker's dozen because i had taken two non-fans with me when we were sitting behind the stage that night the smoke machine started going when oh holy night started happening and my friends were like what's going on and i was like i have no idea because the only song they use the smoke machine for is steam and they've played that before so i'm like listening intently and i'm I'm starting to hear it, and I am Christian, so I know that song. <laughs> a lot of my friends who are with me, a lot of fish fans are Jewish, and they might not know that song. Actually, many of the people I was with it had no idea what it was. So I was just cracking up because, again, it's like these little inside jokes inside the inside jokes, and I just thought that was so brilliant.
3: That was Diana Hank, and here's author, music critic, and podcaster Stephen Haydn.
1: Uh, when they played White Winter, Winter Hymnal by Fleet Foxes. And then Fleet Foxes played Bouncing Around the Room, I think, like the next night. So there was a cool little dialogue going on between the two bands there. And again, just like Fish covering that Fleet Foxes song, that's not really something that I think anyone would have expected.
3: With scars of red tied round their
15: throats To keep their little heads from falling in the snow
10: I turn round and there you go then Michael you would fall and turn the white snow red as strawberries in the summertime
15: Powder Finger was the cover that Powder Night definitely was my favorite of them all start to finish I I I knew they would play that more than I knew they would play Cinnamon Girl whenever they got to Cinnamon Night Powder Night was July 26th and July 27th was uh, two years since my dog uh, Haley passed. And I, it was, that was still very fresh in my mind. And even though the story of the song on Fingers" has nothing to do with a guy and his dog, there were some parts to that song that really hit home during the show when they were singing it. And... I wasn't exactly cognizant of the date while they were playing it, but the next day it came on in rotation and I broke down crying as I was driving home because there's a couple of lyrics in there
7: that just, just hit the spot.
3: you didn't recognize it, that was the voice of fan art's Pete Mason, and he makes a touching point. Talk to anyone who went to the Baker's Dozen, and you'll find that almost all of them have some kind of personal connection to some aspect of the show. Whether it's flavor-related, the personal connection to a rare bust-out, or some emotional response to one of the covers. Carla Noh is a friend of the podcast, and one of her favorite covers from the Dozen was Radiohead's Everything in its Right Place, which by the way, we agree was pretty special and super exciting to witness.
15: As soon as they started playing it, I knew what it was. And, you know, granted some people were guessing during the day, oh, they're gonna play this because it's Lemon Night and sucking on a lemon. But either way, once they started playing it, I started freaking out. I've been a Radiohead fan since high school. And I looked around, and just people in my close proximity—they didn't know what it was. <laughs> and I'm like, "Do you not know what this is?" And, and I was—I was really excited at that moment. I've been dreaming
4: of fish playing Radiohead for a long time. Seven, seven.
3: As for the Boston and Cream mashup for Boston Cream Night, which the band had joked about for years and which was arguably the actual seed that eventually sprouted the entire Baker's Dozen, well, let's let Justin Bieber's musical director and lead guitarist and well-documented fish fan Dan Cantor speak his mind on that one.
11: The Boston Cream. I mean, there were so many good moments, but that moment when it transitioned to chorus, and then when it went to the guitar solo, I was—I've never jumped as high as I did, you know. in that mo- to me, that was the climax of the dozen. That moment, that guitar solo, when it switched to more than a feeling. I mean, they they performed it perfectly, but everyone was talking about Boston Cream. And, you know, it's incredible that Fish did this incredible feat that was so planned out. But it very well could have actually started from a silly joke in a dressing room about doing Boston Cream. So while this is like one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of rock and roll... It also was equally like a joke, maybe. So when that started and everyone knew it was coming, I was wearing like a Boston shirt that like my sister gave me. Just everyone knew it was coming. And when that moment came, it was almost like, you know, when like cold air washed over, you know, when you just get like a breeze, it was... Unbelievable. And that moment for me was by far the, the best feeling and one of the best feelings I've ever had at Fish. You know, I was on the floor and we were just jumping and, you know, that solo, it was incredible.
3: It was incredible, but that's for another season. Before we bring this episode to a close, we'd like to check in with one more person. You may know this guy from the internet, we know him as the guy who wrote Chocolate Rain, which Fish covered in the opening slot on Double Chocolate Night. Tay it's
5: It's definitely very flattering for Fish to have covered the song. I uh, am, am deeply complimented by that. I mean, I, I love what I from what I've learned of Fish and what I saw of the video because they're just very chill, very, you know, <laughs> they get on stage like it's their living room. Very real, very unpretentious, very, I, I don't want to say unassuming as a pejorative sense, but as a welcoming and complimentary sense, they're unassuming in a way that makes me feel okay about myself and able to be at ease. Chocolate rain, some stay dry and others feel the pain. Chocolate rain, a baby this in chocolate rain yeah i mean chocolate rain i originally wrote it as a ballad about institutional racism it became popular as a viral song that i think went viral just because of the experience of my body singing it uh you know somebody who looks like Bruno morris sounds like barry white moves like mr bean has a very uh specific type of presentation and my just leading into that fully with no Reservations or awareness that I was doing anything unique or strange. It's a chocolate rain. Everybody is like this. Yeah, hey, everybody moves away from the mic to breathe. In. Oh, I thought it was unique. I mean, it had some nice harmonies. It was fairly straightforward. Yeah, I think they kind of did the motion of moving away from uh, the mic to breathe a little bit. I thought it was nice. It was very sweet. Very sweet, very touching.
3: That's going to do it for us for this week. Next week on Undermine, we go for the type two donuts, the ones that are stuffed in the middle. It's the jam-filled episode of Undermine. And if you stick around after the credits, you'll hear what's not going to be on it. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, Matt Dwyer, and Benji Ison. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. It is written by Benji Ison. Production assistance from Rob Mitchum, Matt Bavuso, Christina Collins, and Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastri. Art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all our interviewees. We'll see you next week. Next week, not on Undermine.
6: Oh, my name is Pete Shapiro, and uh, I put on shows, live music shows, for the last 25 years, mostly in New York City, but sometimes all over the place. It's just special, and you can, and I think it's a feedback, it's a loop, then, right? So for the audience, if it's really special, Gives off an energy, then the band is also feeling it's the garden, then they're giving off an energy that the audience then feels. So the audience goes higher, and then the band feels that, and the band goes higher, and so it's like a circle. And I actually think that circle is a big part of fish, and the magic of fish. And you can actually see it sometimes if you're like, if you're not too up close, kind of pull back a bit. If you're like in the 200 sections, maybe at the garden or higher 100s, and you're looking and watching, and you can see the audience, you can see the band, and particularly Trey, and the way that Trey plays, he leans in, and, 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 and like you can see the energy loop between the bands on the, particularly the GA floor and Trey, you know, leaning in, and then he feeds it, and then he's feeding it back to them. And then they give it back to him. And I swear you can see that. Like, I can't. I feel it and see it.
15: the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story
7: is the best song. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurwitz, and -and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love.